Brexit. Will Britain stay or leave? The current state of Donald Trump's suffering campaign. This is Jared Ingalls. And this is Caleb Wheat. And this is Ingalls Wheat 2016. This Thursday, the United Kingdom will be having perhaps the most important nationwide referendum that it has had this century. Uh, In fact, there have been very few referendums held on a national scale because it's not really part of the uh, British quote-unquote constitution, which they do not have written down, but is assumed to be the uh, tradition of the law as it is carried out in (laughs) England. But uh, this time around, I'm assuming to... uh, maybe shift blame for the outcome or the decision, David Cameron has decided, and Parliament as a whole, to put this issue to a vote of the British people to determine where sovereignty should lie. Which we should say and point out that it was a major piece of of David Cameron's last election that he would do so. So it it was a big part of what helped the, the Conservative Party win so well. It helped the Conservative Party win in many ways because it helped them gain UKIP voters back from the radical yeah. right. Well, not radical right, but from the far right yes. in well. England. So the Conservatives were facing this huge uprising from UKIP, yeah. and they were afraid that UKIP would take away so many votes that it would enable Labour to actually be able to secure a majority in Parliament. So in order to gain some of these UKIP voters, David Cameron promised a referendum on the EU. But David Cameron also quite intelligently wanted a referendum on the EU in order to be able to apply pressure to European to the European Union to get even more of a special deal for the United Kingdom. So that's a little bit of the background. Just for reviewers who don't know much about the UK's relationship to the EU, I want to say that the United Kingdom is the second it's the second most powerful economically and militarily member of the European Union, second only to Germany right now. Yeah. Some would say that France is one of the big three, but France's economy is so messed up and their bureaucratic night, the bureaucratic nightmare of their government um, causes France to be kind of, the best word I can think of is impotent in any kind of international um, or decisions being made within the EU. So it's usually Britain and Germany calling the shots. The United Kingdom is unique because it is one is the only major player in the EU that does not use the euro. It has monetary independence from the European Union. And there are some other things that Britain has fought for for a long time, claiming that as a island, as an island, they deserve perfect special treatment. And so over the past two years, what are some things that David Cameron has secured? David Cameron has secured the ability for Britain, which no other European country has the ability to do this, to put brakes on immigration controls to be able to have more control over the numbers of people that can come into their country, the ways that they process immigrants, the way that they uh, provide surveillance for travel, um, gave Britain a little bit more control over its budgets to make sure that British money cannot be randomly um, co-opted by the EU to pay for uh, 
a bailout plans in Greece, for example. One of the biggest moments of anger in the past two years was when the British government was on the edge of, this is a miracle, I wish we could say this about the United States. Mm -hmm. The United Kingdom was on the edge of a balanced budget, and then the EU declared that they needed 2.4 billion pounds of the British budget that year, uh, once the numbers went flying, in order to meet ends meet. Um, And so... Britain randomly had to pay out another $2.4 billion to the European Union budget. And one of this is one of the main stickling points, is that the United Kingdom has consistently, for the past decade, paid more into the EU budget than the EU had, than it's received back from the EU. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's one of the biggest complaints, is that Britain is contributing more than it is receiving. That's one of the biggest arguments of the Leave campaign. And the Leave campaign scarily for a lot of people has been doing incredibly well mm-hmm. in the lead up to this referendum there have been moments a couple weeks ago when the leave campaign was definitely in the lead the most recent polls show that the remain campaign may have a slight edge over the leave campaign mm-hmm. and today was the largest debate that we've had so far on the british referendum on whether or not to become independent from the eu there was a two hour long debate between six different people, three for the Remain campaign, three for the Leave campaign, and it seems like the general read so far is that the Leave campaign have far more emotion and passion and feeling driving their campaign, and the Remain campaign has struggled to channel that energy, but the Remain campaign during the debate was actually able to make arguments for staying in the EU rather than making excuses for the EU, Mm -hmm. which has been the general tenor of the campaign so far. The Remain campaign has made excuses for why certain things has happened rather than arguing for why Britain should be in the EU. And this may be a strategy that they have adopted far too late, and that's what I'm worried about. Um, But that all being said, that back matter... (laughs) Yeah. I still don't know whether I am for campaign leave or campaign remain. And I want to hear you tell me why you believe what you believe. And then I'll talk to you about my confusion. Go ahead, Caleb. Well, I mean, I'm all in for remain. I think that, I mean, just A, on the the fundamental principle of of what the EU is about and what the EU is supposed to serve, even though it is a bureaucratic nightmare, I think everyone in the world can understand that and accept that that the European Union is a bureaucratic nightmare. And that's a reality. We can't deny that. But that doesn't mean that you abandon it. Because ultimately what the European Union is about is making sure that these states within Europe are essentially forced to get along, okay? Because- <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Counterpoint. Then why can why do we have to move to an ever closer federal union of political centralization in Brussels instead of just a European economic community, which is what Europe had in maintaining peace throughout Europe throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, and it was only in the 1990s that the EU project began to make Europe feel much more like a confederacy, ceding more and more national control to Europe, and especially with the United Currency right now, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of monetary policy is made from unelected officials in Brussels, 
you have a lot of trading regulation that is now decided in Brussels. So this isn't just a bureaucracy like the Social Security Administration. This isn't a bureaucracy like uh, the Department of uh, Housing and Minority Affairs um, for the government, which is ran by people who are appointed by elected officials, and they are regulated by elected officials in the United States. But the EU is not that. Next point is, how does leaving the EU accomplish any goal that Britain has? Because unless the EU is entirely dissolved, then the UK is still going to have to function and abide by EU standards and regulations for them to have any viable economic relationship with the countries that are within it. Right, okay, so... Currently, Norway and Switzerland are two countries that have special trade deals with the European Union that grant them access to the single market without ceding as much political autonomy as, say, Portugal and Spain have had to cede to Brussels in order to have that economic relationship. So, for example, if Britain wanted to maybe still bend to some of these economic regulations in order to have that kind of relationship with the EU – fine. But Britain gets to choose whether or not it's going to bend to those regulations to have access to the single market. But Britain still then gets autonomy on issues like immigration, national security. Does that make sense? So even mm -hmm. if they still have to abide by EU regulations in the economic sphere, they get a lot more independence in national security issues, on immigration issues, on other issues of sovereignty, on taxation. So for example, in the EU, if you're a member state of the EU, there is a law that you have to have a minimum, minimum in the your country, if you're a member of the EU, has to have a minimum sales tax, a value-added tax of 15%. So there's nothing that Britain can ever do to push below that mm -hmm. floor of taxation, even if they wanted to. So there, it's not necessarily that they're dictating to Britain what their VAT has to be or what their income tax has to be, but there are these floors that prevent Britain from doing exactly what right. they want with tax policy. Does that make sense? So they could still gain more autonomy on tax policy, mm -hmm. even if they still bent to the economic parts of the EU. That's That that's, would be the counterpoint to what you just said, is, yeah, right. sure, let's say Britain still abides by those standards and still has to follow those regulations, but then don't we grant autonomy in all these other areas? Get, get autonomy in these right. other areas. I definitely see that on the tax point, but you know, you mentioned the national security and, and the immigration concerns, which obviously UKIP's main argument has been about the immigration, right? That's that's their big thing. And unfortunately, right. a lot of UKIP rhetoric sounds like Donald Trump or even worse than Donald Trump. Right. Uh, but on the, issue, on the issue of national security, I haven't really heard someone make an argument, or at least what I've read. I haven't read an argument on the national security front where I'm actually convinced that they don't have, where EU countries don't actually have autonomy on national security. Because I know that you have that relationship and that established thing, but I haven't heard anyone argue to me that it's anything greater or more, um, aside, from the, aside from the immigration issue, which you know you, some like to portray as a national security issue, then I haven't seen how it is any more demanding upon the nation of Britain than any other treaty like NATO is. Right. So for the argument from the Remain, I mean the Leave campaign would be that we shouldn't have to pay 
into anything that contributes to EU national security, since all of our national security in England relies on NATO anyway. So right now, the UK pays for the maintenance of a European emergency reactionary force in Brussels, which they really wouldn't benefit from. And there's also talk and chatter amongst a lot of bureaucrats that they would like to raise an actual EU army. And that doesn't make Britain very comfortable uh, <laughs> having now, to pledge a certain number of troops to the EU, for example. That's not something um, that I would find comfortable of either, if that were if that were to actually occur. So um, here's the question. Yeah. Here's the question. It, I, it depends on, so the EU treaty, like the mm -hmm. one that presently exists and that Britain is a part of, states that one, explicitly states in multiple places that the whole goal of this is not just cooperation, but that it is ever closer union. That Those words are literally embedded in the Constitution in multiple places. But it depends on what you think those words apply to. So right. Britain's argument would be, okay, that means if in the context of when it, where it is in the Constitution, it means an ever closer union of peoples. So the ability to have free travel the ability to attend university wherever you want, a closer collaboration of cultures, a trading of languages, the ability for farmers and the ability of small businessmen and other businesses to be able to trade more freely across EU boundaries. Right. So, so Britain is actually okay with that. Yeah, they've they've exactly signed on for I that. And, yeah. And a lot of, and I'm on board with that, if that's what the EU was. The Leave campaign is increasingly nervous by the fact that over the past several years, the phrase ever closer union has been interpreted by the European Court of Justice, which now, under EU treaty, has jurisdiction over British economic deals. Like it has to go before the, instead of, instead of us, ours, the Supreme Court in the United States, the highest you got to go. Right. Britain used to be the court in London. Now, the, you can act, Britain can be held accountable by the European Court of Justice in lawsuits that France or someone might file against them because they don't think that Britain should be able to make a particular trade deal. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is this court has consistently used the ever closer union clause in the Constitution to actually advocate for closer political union. Mm -hmm. So the Britain has lost a slew of lawsuits when Britain has been claiming no ever closer union means ever closer union of peoples, not ever closer union of political power, and they've gotten shot down on multiple different occasions when that's come forward over the past several years. So that's caused aggravation. If, so there's also, right, it's not just a sovereignty issue. What Britain is actually voting on is the anger in many ways is feeling like Europe is starting to interpret parts of the European Constitution in ways that Britain has never really been comfortable with. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Right. It does make sense. And I'm just... I don't know. I'm just not convinced that leaving the EU will bring about the result that they actually want. Because... Oh, I, I am too. I, <laughs> <laughs> while, while they... While they may get temporary relief or, you know, be able to take a breath and not worry about whatever they want to, they're worrying about right now for a moment, I mean, Britain leaving the EU will ha could have ramifications that we don't, we can't fully process at this point. You know what I'm saying? It's just, right. it's, so, 
who knows what the, so here's what the, the side effects could be. And then if they if if something were to happen, if Britain were to leave, and then something were to happen and the EU dissolve altogether, then where does that leave the entire continent? Okay, so this is the trail. So I, just for the sake of this little segment, I'm always going to pretend to be on the side of campaigns day at leave <laughs> while you right. campaign stay even though i really don't know um, so <laughs> the argument from campaign would be that britain leaving the eu would open up the opportunity for britain to negotiate free trade agreements and uh other kinds of economic agreements similar to the ones existing in norway and sweden i mean norway and switzerland so that the, there'd be no economic real long-term loss from the united kingdom to europe the argument is that a lot of people in the Remain campaign have said that if Britain leaves, they'll be subject to new taxes and tariffs that they never faced before. And campaign leave would say, that's not true. Germany and France are not stupid. They would never impose tariffs on British goods from the United Kingdom, especially since the European banking system relies almost entirely on London. Most of the EU's debt is currently held currently managed and currently invested by British bankers and British banks because British bankers and British banks are far better at this than Europe. Do you know who the current head of the Bank of Europe is? Because the past two were French and Italian and they nearly ran it into the ground. The new head of the European Central Bank is Lord Hill, a British banker who has really no investment in the euro doing fantastic but they had to bring in somebody from the Bank of England to try and manage Europe's finances. So Britain's argument is, sure, fine, try to treat us poorly. Watch what happens to your entire financial grid, which is backed up by, managed by, and supported by British finance. And that's exactly what what confuses me, because if you have that much leverage over the European Union, then use it. If you have that much power and that much, you think if you think you have that much ability to control the way that the other countries are going to treat you, which to some extent they already do, like you talked about it at the beginning with what David Cameron has been doing with the EU recently. I mean, there there's evidence to suggest that. Don't leave the EU. Take over the EU. Do what well, you need to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's a little powerhouse called Germany who sits in the center of the European Union who has even more economic sway than the United Kingdom over this entire enterprise. In fact, Germany has greater control over Europe than it's had since 1943. But the issue is uh, with Britain, and they're doing exactly what you said that they want to do. It's this entire negotiation process to get this special relationship between the EU and Britain has only been possible for Britain. Other countries have wanted to do it as well. Greece, Portugal, these are other countries that have tried to get special relationships with the EU, but they just don't have the political or economic strength to negotiate. This has been Britain versus 27 members of the EU every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they've managed to get so far is already testimony enough to the leverage that Britain does hold within the EU. But it always must be remembered that this is 60 million people, the United Kingdom, versus 400 million people. So there's still definitely a lack of balance of negotiating power in that situation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and Britain is more reliant upon EU to buy its goods than vice versa. Right. Ultimately, all I can say is if the e if Britain thinks that it has enough ability to make sure that they don't suffer when they leave the EU, then that tells me that they should believe that they have enough ability to change and reform the EU from within. But that's all I have to say on that. We're about out of time for this one. Do you have any final thoughts? I do not. Only this, that I think that Britain and the European Union are both going to be fine, whatever the outcome on Friday. And I know there's a lot of anxiety, I know there's a lot of nerves, but there are some really smart people running these countries, and it's not immediate. It's not like a vote happens and Britain's gone. What happens on Thursday triggers Section 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which means that there will then be two years of negotiation before independence even begins to occur between Britain and the EU. So there is a long road ahead if Britain does choose to leave. And I'm sure that they'll hammer out the best possible relationship between Britain and the EU possible. And if Britain does leave the EU, I have long believed that the EU should actually become a smaller union. I don't think that they need to be 27 member states trying to unify fiscal and monetary policies as different as Latvia's and Germany's, mm -hmm. Portugal's and Belgium's. So if you can just isolate it down to the original economic community of 14 states, Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, you'll be actually able to standardize and stabilize the euro, probably have a stronger currency and a stronger central Europe in the long run. Because remember, power is not measured in numbers. It's not just measured in economic output. It's measured on your collective ability to move groups of people in an organized way. Hence why the United States still manages to be three times the economy size of China and how Britain by itself still manages to be the fifth largest economy and most influential nation in the world with 60 million people. It's yeah. the collective ability of these nations to organize their people and channel that energy and those economic goals to particular places. So that's all I have to say as a final thought on this. Well, referendum. a nice op optimistic way to end that conversation. Stick with us for our second segment when we're going to give a slightly less optimistic view of the current state of our presidential race. For our second segment tonight, we are going to be getting into American politics after our brief escapade across the ocean for the Brexit conversation, as it has been several weeks since we were with you, and while there really haven't been any major updates, as in, you know, neither Clinton nor Trump have picked their vice presidential nominee and nothing really crazy has happened, there have been some interesting developments in the Trump campaign. And that is, it is doing everything it possibly can to implode entirely. Um, Surprise! <laughs> who could have seen it coming? <laughs> so, this culminated in many ways, um, Not it's not complete, but on Monday, Donald Trump fired his campaign manager, who has been with him from the beginning of the campaign, 
Corey Lewandowski. I don't know even now. I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce his last name. Um, and honestly, I don't know exactly where he got him from. Um, but he has been with Trump from the beginning of the campaign. And, you know, Trump has had trouble. He hasn't been uniting the party. In wake of Orlando the other day, he just started claiming victory, basically, because it happened. Saying, oh, look how right I was, and blah, blah, blah. And now he said, um, he, he has said that profiling is something that we're going to have to start thinking about. And his campaign has virtually no money, no infrastructure, no clue what it's doing. So he fired this guy. And honestly, I don't, there's been no announcement. They, he has somebody. Um, taking over, but there has been no announcement as to who they're thinking for, to replace him or any campaign strategy going forward. Right. Okay. So all that being said, I want to also touch on a couple other things that he said that were perhaps the most troubling things that he said, <laughs> which was in multiple interviews, even when he was asked if he wanted to rethink his answer on CBS, <laughs> like gave him time to like think through what he had just claimed. <sighs> Donald Trump repeatedly he made several not accusations but hints that the president of the united states is currently a cover agent for isis working in the white house to kind of help isis thrive this is the president who has dropped more bombs on the middle east and on terrorist organizations than any other president in U.S. history. This is the president who captured and had killed Osama bin Laden. This is the president who has been actively fighting against terrorism almost more aggressively than George W. Bush did. So that's not an accusation that you can make. And even Paul Ryan had to come forward and say, okay, you can't say that kind of thing. You can't just slander the president of the United States with treason when he is your sitting commander in chief. And we have to assume and we have to believe that the president of the United States, whether or not they are right or wrong, are actively working to protect the American people. Whether or not they're doing a good job of that is up for debate, but not accusing them of actively working to harm the American people. I wouldn't say that about Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, uh, Roosevelt, Lincoln, Jackson. I don't think any of these guys ever actively worked to harm and put no. the American people in danger because they're the president. They know that their job is to keep people safe was one of their main duties. They might not do a good job of that sometimes, but that's probably because they had the wrong policy mm-hmm. or were incompetent, not and because they were actively trying to. If there is going to be a conspiracy of that nature within our federal government, it can't happen from the Oval Office. You need you see what I'm saying? Because <laughs> no one is going right. no president is going to be allowed to overtly work to damage America from the Oval Office because that president is going to have to convince or basically fool all of the commanders in chief, the entire cabinet, his or her entire staff, the congressional leadership, the person would get indicted. They would be impeached. They would be put in jail for violation of the Constitution of the United States. You can't do that. It just isn't possible. Right. So in Donald Trump, you have somebody who is the nominee for the Republican Party who seems to be more accurately running to be the the conspiracy in chief 
the conspirator in chief, the man who's just spouting conspiracies, whatever he turns to rather than being commander in chief. And so I don't know. His campaign is gone completely off. the. A lot of people, I think we're kind of just from a strategic standpoint. I'm not, I don't want to seem heartless when I'm talking about Orlando from a strategic point of view. A lot of people are like, well, the day after this could really change the campaign. This could be an ace for Donald Trump. And it really could have been. Yeah. And Hillary knew it could have been. Everyone knew it could have been. If this would actually convince people that, you know what, we just need somebody who's going to kick, like, protect us from Muslims. But he yeah. completely bungled it. Oh. All he had to do is be, like, somewhat reasoned yeah. and say the stuff that he said in the past. But no, he just started saying crazier and crazier and crazier things, racist things, hateful things, things that just blatantly are not true. But apparently, that doesn't matter for Donald Trump. And whenever news reporters, uh, try to take him to task for saying things that are just blatantly not true. People who support Trump are like, ah, the media is just biased against Trump. Yeah, The media doesn't give him a fair shot. The media's job. And then the argument may have been made about Obama, that the media just loved Obama, but the media has not loved Hillary Clinton. If there's ever been anyone who's been held under the spotlight uh, her entire career and not received preferential treatment from the media. It's Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hillary and so Clinton. Hillary yeah. Clinton. Right. Exactly. She's probably been one of the most scrutinized people in American politics. I think it's fair to say that Trump needs to face that same level of scrutiny that she's faced for 20 years. Yeah. We're compressing it all into six months. So it seems like we're giving extra focus to Donald Trump. That's because we've listened to this woman and conducted the most crazy specific investigations into her background over the past 30 years. And we've not done this with him at all. And it's also because he just keeps saying crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, it's because so, he deserves it, it. He deserves the scrutiny right. and he deserves the criticism. I don't understand how this man can think these things because more and more I'm starting to believe that he really does think these things. At first I thought he was just being a complete, so- <laughs> so- a complete um, uh, sociopath and that he didn't care what he said as long as they got him elected, so he would say whatever he needed to say. But now I'm really starting to think he might be an actual psychopath, and it makes me really worried. Right, because because if he was just saying whatever he needed to say in order to get elected, he would have changed his rhetoric a little bit. Yes, exactly. Right? He wouldn't have, because you're not going to win a national election primary. talking about... Right, just get him through the primary, ride, riding a campaign on hate. But it seems like it would be very stupid... Or you actually really believe that you're right when you've said a lot of the things in the primary campaign, and you're going to run a general election on hate, which I which guess is not working. He'll. I guess I never really technically believe that he didn't think it. I mean, I, I I guess I really really hoped that that was the case, and now I I really I mean he really believes this stuff. He really thinks this stuff is true. Right. That he's saying, and the problem and the is, thing is, well, let, let me just say that he's fin, he, you know, he's fired yeah, his campaign ahead. manager. He doesn't. We don't know who he's going to bring in as his new campaign manager. The Republican leaders, I guarantee you, for the last two days, have been trying to force on him two or three key players in the Republican Party. You know what I mean? They're, they've been, they've had a couple yeah. of people they've been trying to force on the campaign, but ultimately, it doesn't matter because what's been obvious for this entire campaign is that no matter who the campaign manager is. Donald Trump will not be controlled. 
Right. No, exactly. And so if you, if he's not able to negotiate with the people most close to his views, I guess, the Republican Party, I guess they're the how is he going to, I mean, I don't know exactly. He doesn't seem to get along with a lot of them. Uh, how is he going to get along with, I don't know, France, uh, <laughs> China, like people who have diametrically different positions on lots of things his response cannot be to hell with all of you i'm going to run this show how i want because we live in an international community not we're not just all nations think about first of all donald trump appointing ambassadors just think about that for a second that donald trump would be the one in charge of creating and establishing and staffing the diplomatic core of the United States of America. And then realize just how non-existent our diplomatic relationships would be for however long he was president. Because I'm not even going to say, even if he gets elected, that he would be around for a full term. Because I swear to God, I wouldn't be amazed if Donald Trump pulled a Sarah Palin, got bored, and resigned. But right, maybe. He, I mean, maybe. Hopefully, hopefully, right, or something. And, but, I mean, and, and if you about. think that we are being, yeah, and if you all think that we sound biased and that we're in Clinton's camp, I don't like Clinton. I she's crazy. Like uh, she's a criminal. She, she's corrupt as can be, right? Yeah. The problem is, it's not just us who are saying this about Donald Trump. This is Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney saying that he will not be voting. For Donald Trump, because he is terrified of trickle-down misogyny and trickle-down racism and trickle-down hatred. That's a quote from Mitt Romney and sticking by his guns. He doesn't know who he's voting for, but it is not Donald Trump. I'm really, this is John McCain. Yeah, I'm really impressed, by the way. pulled out. Sorry, I was just going to say, I'm really impressed that, that Mitt Romney has stuck with stuck to his guns so much. I'm just really impressed right. that he's and, been willing to do that. Exactly. George W. Bush going to campaign for John McCain in Arizona this past couple weeks. It's strange to me that W is like actually on the campaign trail. I know, but um, John McCain has completely distanced himself from Donald Trump. Won't even attend the convention because he knows it will jeopardize his seat. Mm -hmm. And in a speech while campaigning for John McCain. George W. Bush said it is absolutely essential that we maintain control of the Senate as Republicans to control and to be a check of power on Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Bush is just as afraid of Donald Trump. That was his statement. We have to maintain the Senate in order to act as it. John McCain is one of the few people who has the experience and who has the political power probably in the Senate to actually act as a counterbalancing force to Donald Trump. That's why we need him back in the Senate. That's crazy. You have a former president. You have a former candidate. You have both of our last two nominees. You have Paul Ryan almost on a daily basis having to come out and clarify what the Republican Party actually believes. Yeah. Uh, or telling Donald Trump that's not how the Constitution works, which Paul Ryan has come out publicly and said twice this past week. So, yes, Republicans are bewildered. And I don't know what's going to happen at the convention. I'm not even – I'm still unconvinced that the Republican Party is not – going to set a rule that would allow the delegates to be freed 
or that would allow the delegates to actually argue, because there is a growing number of delegates who are trying to find a backdoor plan to stop Donald Trump from becoming the nominee. It initially started as a group of 30 delegates about a week ago. Since then, it has swelled to several hundred delegates who are getting on board this plan of trying to undermine Trump's yeah. Um, nomination, I'm, which I think they should. I think they should too. I'm hoping and praying for it because I really will not be able to tolerate a general election between these two candidates. And it's, Trump does not. Does to be fair, yeah. I'm still, I am still going to pick the smart, corrupt boss lady over crazy, hate-filled idiot yes. Donald Trump. Like I'm, I, I do not like Hillary. I think she stands for a lot of what is wrong in American politics. Yes, but maybe she's who we need. Maybe no, not not who we need, but out of these two candidates, whatever. Trevor Noah on uh, the Daily Show the other day. Yeah. I, I really like this. He was saying, "Okay, America, you left us with two options. You left us with the she wolf of Wall Street and somebody <laughs> who looked like he got stuck in the." pump in the chocolate pipes at the Willy Wonka factory. He's like, what happened, America? You have two presidential candidates, but you have 17 different kinds of cornflakes, <laughs> like, which we do. We have 17 different kinds of cornflake options when you go to the store. Uh, but I think that in the end, there really is no comparison between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yes, she's bad, but we've had corrupt politicians I think that Hillary Clinton is head and shoulders the better option in this race for our respectability abroad. She's popular abroad. She knows how to run the world, those kinds of things. So if it comes down to it, just bite the bullet, close your eyes, repent later, but vote Hillary. (laughs) Don't vote for Donald. Or at least vote for Gary Johnson. If you're just... Yeah. Well, I was just about to say, if it's between, if literally I was not allowed to write someone in, I wasn't allowed to vote anyone, vote for anyone else, and I had to pick between Hillary and Trump, I would obviously vote for Hillary. Because as I've said to more than one person, I'm like, I know that, you know, Hillary's corrupt and just can't stand the idea of her being president. But if she's president for four or eight years, however long it is, when her term ends four or eight years from now... America will be pretty much the same as it is now. It won't get a lot better. It won't get a lot worse. You know what I'm saying? We'll just, if nothing else, we'll be able to hold steady. (laughs) But at the same (laughs) time, I just, I really, I, I believe in the importance of every individual vote. And I will, my plan at the moment unless someone convinces me otherwise, my plan at the moment is to vote for someone besides those two. Right. And if you're in Kentucky, or in my case, New York, I'm probably voting for a third candidate. I'm not sure exactly yet. But we're fine. We're, but if you live in Ohio, <laughs> or Virginia, or Florida... I don't know if you should actually vote your conscience so much as to vote against Donald Trump. Maybe you actually have an ethical responsibility to vote for Hillary. <laughs> and I maybe I'm overstating that, but if I was in Ohio, I would be voting for Hillary. In New York, probably Gary Johnson. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, we'll see how this turns out. I don't have anything else to say on this for this week. Um, do you? 
I do not. Okay. Other than this was actually kind of refreshing. We again, we said that we were taking a hiatus from this show yeah. because we couldn't on a weekly basis just talk about how crazy Donald Trump is. Right. So we've had about three weeks mm-hmm. and we got to come back and do what we would have been doing the past three episodes, which was recap what has happened over the past three weeks as to what Donald Trump has been saying right. because he continues to steer the campaign. Yeah. And we did it in like a clean 16 minutes. So, uh, and we got to talk about Brexit. Nice. So I think this was a good call on our part. On our part. And in that vein, we will not have an episode next week um, we'll have an episode either two weeks from now or maybe if we feel like nothing has happened, maybe we'll wait another week or something. But um, The conventions will be underway, so something what? will have happened. When? Aren't the conventions just... They're, I mean, like they're, they're starting. There's like the planning meetings in, over the next couple weeks. Oh, okay. The conventions don't start. I was about to say, what? I knew they were early, but that's really early. <laughs> um, yes, no, something will have happened. You're right. So be looking for us in a couple weeks. Um, As always, we thank you for listening, Uh, and as we continue on into the general election of these conventions, feel free to share this podcast with anyone you know who might be interested, and get engaged with us on Twitter in the conversation. Our show is produced by Gwendolyn Wheat and hosted on SoundCloud, and I am Caleb Wheat. And I am Jared Ingalls, and this is Ingalls Wheat 2016.